Now, beginning next Sunday, we'll be able to hear the prayer that Jesus prays to the Father through chapter 17. And then when we get to chapter 18, we'll see Jesus betrayed and arrested. So as we conclude this morning, what for us has been nearly four months of study, we come to the end of what has been one long night of conversation between Jesus and His disciples. This is the last teaching that they will receive from Jesus before His crucifixion. And Jesus said in the first part of verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. And if you've paid attention all throughout these chapters, Jesus certainly has used figurative language. In chapter 13, verse 10, He spoke of their standing as disciples as being bathed, washed, clean. In verse 16 of that same chapter, He commanded their obedience by saying that a servant is not greater than his master, or the one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. The bulk of chapter 15 was all just one big analogy about vines and branches and pruning and bearing fruit. And even last week in chapter 16, when we got to verse 21, Jesus spoke figuratively about a woman in labor and taught them that their present sorrow would become permanent joy. So Jesus hasn't held back on the figurative language on this night and through these chapters. And as we've worked through these last few chapters, we've seen so many promises from Jesus to His sorrowful disciples. He's promised to prepare a place for them in His Father's house. He's promised that although He must go away now, He will return to take them to that place. He's promised that they would do great works in this world in His name. He's promised that whatever they ask in His name... He would do it. He's promised to send them another helper, the Holy Spirit, to come alongside them and walk with them. He's promised to give them peace. He's promised to make them fruitful in their labor as they abide in Him. He's promised His own lasting love for them, and He's promised them joy. That's a lot of promises. But all along we've seen these hopeful promises meant to comfort the disciples have been mingled with warnings and other promises that are less than exciting. For example, Jesus promised that one of them would betray Him. He promised that they would all abandon Him. He promised that the world would hate them, that they would be persecuted, that those who killed them would think they would be doing God a service, that they will weep and lament and be sorrowful. But He didn't say those things to discourage them. He wanted them to enter into the ministry, following after His ministry with eyes wide open. 
He didn't want anything to catch them off guard. He wanted them to be aware of the troubles that they would face so that when they faced them, they would not be overcome by them. They wouldn't be knocked down. They wouldn't be overwhelmed. He wanted them to know that though they have sorrow, though they have trouble, though their, their trials will abound, eventually their sorrow will be turned into joy. And the promises of hope that He gave to them would be sufficient to carry them through every trial. It would be these promises that would carry them through, give them strength, give them hope and comfort as they lived, not for peace and prosperity in this life, but they lived with eyes towards that eternal home, that perfect and, and, and blessed life beyond this one. And in this last section of the discourse, these verses we've read this morning, the disciples are assured by Jesus. And we can be assured by Jesus that everything He's promised, all that He's promised, is guaranteed. All the promises are guaranteed because, as we've read, He has conquered. He has overcome the world. So we've seen the warnings, we've seen promises, so let's consider the last of these together. In these verses, I believe Jesus communicates at least three more truths to the disciples and consequently to us. Truth number one, the disciples are loved by the Father. The disciples are loved by the Father. Jesus has and always will be about the business of revealing the Father. To the world. He says in verse 25, These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, He won't always speak figuratively or in parables as He has. His purpose throughout His entire ministry, we've seen, has been to reveal the Father, to make God known. Even as far back as chapter 1, Verse 18, John wrote, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That is, the Son, in His very carnation, in His very coming to earth as a man, has made the Father known. It's been that way through His whole ministry. Even as recently as chapter 14 in verse 8 and 9, he said, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and yet you've not known Me? He who has seen Me has seen who? The Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus has been and will be about the business of revealing the Father. Now we would think that as Jesus nears His death, that that ministry would come to an end. That in His life and in His death, He's done everything needed to reveal the Father. And in a sense, He has. But He says in this verse that the day will come, He says, I will tell you plainly about the Father. When, Jesus? You're dead tomorrow. When are you going to reveal the Father to us more than you already have? But He's already told us that, hasn't He? 
Because the ministry of Jesus is continued after His death, His resurrection, and His ascension by another Helper. The Holy Spirit. Back in verse 13 and 14, remember He told the disciples, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. That is, what Jesus has been preaching, what Jesus has been saying throughout His ministry, the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus says and continues to teach it in our lives even today. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues, even to this day, His ministry of revealing the Father, making God known to the world. But the truth that Jesus is declaring here in these verses isn't just that the disciples will know about the Father. It isn't even that the disciples will merely know the Father. No, Jesus says something even better than that. Look at verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father Himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. The Father loves the disciples. Now they were sure about their relationship with Jesus. They knew Jesus cared about them. He'd been with them for three years. But Jesus says the Father Himself loves you. You see, this love from the Father is a particular love. Our access to the Father is only possible through Jesus. But we don't just have access to Jesus. Yes, He's our advocate. Yes, He's our intercessor. Yes, it's only through Him that we can come to the Father. But the Father isn't some grumpy old man in heaven that Jesus has to appease so He'll like us. Yes, they sinned. I know. Calm down. Don't kill them. Remember, I died for them. No, Jesus isn't trying to calm the Father. Jesus says, the Father Himself loves you. The Father Himself loves you. Why? Because, He said in verse 27, you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. This love from the Father is a particular love. It isn't a love that everyone receives. Now we often think of the greatest kind of love as the John 3.16 kind of love, right? And how great a love it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a great love. It's a love that generally and universally invites whosoever will to come and believe and be saved. That is a great love. But I would argue that there's a greater love. Or at least a more particular love. God the Father has a particular, warm affection for those who have loved Jesus and who believe that He really did come from God. 
Do you love Jesus? <laughs> Do you really love Jesus? Not just what He can do for you. Not just the promise of heaven. Not just the promise of peace in this life and all the rest. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe that He truly is from God? Do you believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe it to the extent that you trust Him with your life and with your eternal soul? Friend, if you are loving Jesus, and if you are believing that He really is all that He said He is, you are particularly and warmly loved by the Father. The Father Himself loves you. In verse 28, Jesus basically summarizes His ministry. This is how we get that love. He said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go back to the Father. Now, it's like He makes these two opposing statements, speaking in opposites. I came from the Father and into the world, and now I'm going out of the world and back to the Father. Going back the way He came. It's not just a random statement. It's the message of Jesus summarized. He says, I am from the Father. That is, Jesus is deity. He is of the same substance, the same essence as the Father. Jesus is the Son of God, but He is also God the Son. He is God Himself. He says, I came into the world. That's the incarnation. That's His... Stepping from heaven, not setting aside His deity, but coming as deity and adding to Himself a human nature. He became human flesh. He lived among us sinlessly. He says, I'm leaving the world. That's His work of salvation. That includes the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, all of it. His substitutionary work. His taking your sin and mine and then rising from the dead. And he says, I go to the Father. That's his glorification, his exaltation. When he receives that name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. This is how one receives that love from the Father. Not everybody gets this kind of love, it's by loving Jesus. And believing the truth about Jesus. You receive that particular love. We come to the Father in His name. On His merit. And when we love and believe in the Son. We can be sure that we have the love of the Father Himself. The disciples are loved by the Father. Truth number two. Not quite as encouraging. The disciples will fail Jesus. The disciples will fail Jesus. The eleven speak up, or at least a spokesman for the group speaks up. And in verse 29 and 30, the disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure 
that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. What a profession. It seems sort of out of place, doesn't it? It, it seems to me like it's just this knee-jerk reaction to all that Jesus has said. They've heard about the love of the Father, the promise that they'll eventually understand. Maybe they're thinking, finally, some good news. Let's not talk about that persecution stuff anymore. Let's not talk about death anymore, or sorrow, or weeping, or lamenting. Now we're talking about something good. We're loved by the Father. We like to hear about that. We believe Jesus. We believe that. We know who you are. And I believe that the disciples really do believe. They don't understand it all. Their faith will prove to be shaky. Their confidence in Jesus isn't as strong as they think it is. They're a little too self-confident. And though it may not go far at this point, I believe that as far as their faith does go, that it's genuine. But they're not as confident as they're letting on. Jesus knows that. Jesus answered them in verse 31, Do you now believe? It's hard for me to know where Jesus put the emphasis because we can't hear Him say it. Is it, Do you now believe? Do you really believe it now? Or is it, do you now believe? You guys are just now getting on board? How long has it been? Either way, Jesus knows that they are ignorant about all they're about to go through. About what they're about to experience. He says in verse 32, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come. That you will be scattered each to his own, that is, his own dwelling or his own house, his own place, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father's with me. The time of Jesus' betrayal and his death is upon them. They will scatter. The belief that they express in verse 29 and 30 will prove to be weak. The disciples will all abandon Jesus and He will be left alone. Just Him and His Father. And let me just say this as a way of application. May we never be too confident in our own selves and our own ability to hold on to Christ. May we never look at the disciples and say, I would have never abandoned Jesus like that. Because I think one of the disciples said that. Peter made the same claim. Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll go with you all the way. I will die for you. And was it not Peter who cursed him the loudest when he was confronted on that night? The Apostle Paul, after he'd called on the church at Rome to give themselves as a living sacrifice to God, after he'd told them to be transformed by the renewing of their mind and to do the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, he said this to them, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The same apostle, after he'd warned the Corinthians not to rebel and complain like the Israelites did in the wilderness, he gave them another warning. He said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We can't boast in our own faithfulness. Don't be confident in your own stand against the world and the devil. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you cannot fall. You can fall. I can fall. And even as Christians, we're not immune to the temptations and the pressures of the world. The disciples would fail. On its own, that's a discouraging truth. Many of us, multiple times, will fail. Be encouraged. (laughs) If that truth stood on its own, it would be depressing. But we know that we are loved by the Father. And we know at least one other truth. Truth number three, Jesus has overcome the world. He said in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Everything that Jesus has said, He said it that we might have peace in Him. He gave the promise of peace back in chapter 14, verse 27. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What do you mean you said all that to give us peace? You said we're going to fail you. How does that give us peace? It gives us peace because Jesus already knows how bad you are and how bad we are, and He still loves you. You see, He knew the disciples would forsake Him. He told them, you are going to abandon me, and He still went to the cross. There's a hymn that I don't, I don't think we've ever sung here. Maybe we should. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Friends, that is peace with God. That is the peace of God, knowing that despite our sins, despite our failures, Christ has died for us. Not while we were righteous, not while we were good, but God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. 
He saved us. We have peace with God. And if He went to such great lengths to make peace with God for us, such lousy sinners, how much more should we trust Him for His peace in everything else? He goes on to say, In the world you will have tribulation. It's an old word, but you know what it means. Tribulation. We've seen already the promise of conflict with the world. The world hated Jesus and He promised us that if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate people who live like Jesus. But, he says, be of good cheer. Literally, be of good courage. Take courage. That's a command. There's only one way that you can obey that command. How can you take courage knowing that in the world you will have tribulation? How can you be of good cheer? That's if you're trusting in the next thing Jesus says. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome. I have conquered the world. You're kidding, right, Jesus? I mean, you're about to be arrested. They're going to beat you. They're going to lie about you. They're going to mock you and kill you. He claims victory before his death. The claim to victory comes before the apparent defeat of the cross. But we know that the cross was no defeat at all, was it? I don't often have you flip to multiple passages, but turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled it with a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to His mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Was not a surrender. Was not a cry of defeat. It was a declaration of victory. It was a declaration that he had conquered. That he had overcome the world. It sure didn't look like it. Jesus accomplished all that He came to accomplish. He made payment for sin, purchased salvation for all who would believe in Him. That's a good reason to be of good cheer. That's a good reason to take courage. That's a good reason to have courage when tribulation in this world comes upon you. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has conquered. And He said it from the cross. It is finished. What does that mean for us? 
His followers. While I've got you flipping pages, go to Romans 8. Romans 8. The language is so similar here that Paul uses. He says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Implied answer? Nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Well, Paul says, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us. That's the same word, by the way, or a form of the same word. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. And Paul says, through Him who conquered the world, you, we, are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus conquered, He has made us more than conquerors. Because Jesus overcame the world, tribulation and distress and persecution will not overcome you. Even hours from His own death, Jesus' final words of instruction to His disciples are words of triumph. Friend, be of good cheer. Take courage. Christ has overcome the world. Now, if you're an unbeliever, the greatest way you can trust Him and His conquering work is when He conquered your sin. You've offended Him with your sin. And by His righteous standard, you deserve to go to hell. But He loved you. And He took your punishment on the cross. When He said, it is finished, He wasn't just saying it for everybody else, all the good Christians you know. He was saying it because your sin has been paid for. He has paid your fine in the courtroom and you can walk free if you'll trust Him. Be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. Would you stand and pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word. These chapters we've studied from the upper room, all the promises you've given us, they've been so wonderful. And we can trust that you will fulfill all these promises, that you will take care of us as you said you would. Your promises are guaranteed because Jesus has conquered, because he has overcome the world. And Lord, if someone has not yet been born again, may they repent of their sins and put their trust in you today. And may we who love you trust you in all things. If you sent your own son to die for us, will you not also freely give us all things? You'll give us exactly what we need, Lord. May we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.